We are continuing in our series that we started just a couple of weeks ago. It's our theme right there on the front of your bulletin for the year. And our focus is spiritually on being renewed in the gospel of grace. All of us are a different place spiritually. All of us has different things in our life that God has providentially allowed for us or is allowing for us to experience. And so in that, we want to seek the Lord together, uh, individually, families, as a church body, in what it means to be renewed continually in the gospel of grace. And so we're looking at that subject just uh, right now for a few weeks. And today, particularly, we're going to be focusing on, uh, as you see there, the title, Opposing Forces. And uh, there isn't a primary text. There's a few major texts, and you'll be able to hopefully take notes there in your bulletin on what those texts are in scriptures. We'll look at those. But we're going to look at this subject of what Opposing Forces is about as we consider what it means to be renewed in God's grace and what is possibly opposing that desire, that active intentionality we might have in our heart to move in the renewal of the Spirit of God in our life, but what is working against that? Because there are, as Scripture will show us, several things that are working against that effort. Several things. So let's go to prayer, and then we'll spend time in God's Word looking at what this means regarding renewing our hearts to God's grace. Father, we thank you this morning as we come to your word that you are actively, diligently, continuously working on our behalf to bring us closer to you, to drawing us closer to your very being. That even when we are running away, even when we're struggling, to find your very presence in our heart, in our life, you're always present. You're always there. And thank you for loving us, for not just being there, but pursuing us in the midst of our own frailty. Coming after us, even when we are lost. And bringing us back, always back closer to you. Lord, do your work this very hour in our hearts by the power of your word. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the past couple of weeks, uh, maybe you had an opportunity to catch a little of what was happening in the, the two uh, political parties and putting forth their ideas and their perspectives as the, uh, the election's coming up, as you know, in just a couple of months. And... <clears throat> We've certainly seen two different perspectives on lots of different things in the past couple of weeks. But if there's one thing that both weeks showed me, at least, for the parts that I was able to see um, during the past couple of weeks, was in the process, both parties seem to be very well versed in their oppositions. And as we have seen even before the past couple of weeks, and we'll, so, we'll see in the next several weeks, knowing one's opposition is a, is a very helpful thing when you're trying to meet an objective. When you have something particular that is on your mind and on your focus and on your heart, 
if you know there is opposition to it, then understanding what that looks like, understanding how to identify that opposition is so very important. It's so very important, and it's important spiritually. It's important spiritually as we are together this year really seeking the Lord, and I, I hope and pray that you are, even as we launch this year, praying in your own life daily, praying with your family, praying that God would renew your own life, renew your own heart to his grace, make your own heart in tune more closely with God's heart and what he desires in your life. As a church, we seek to experience that renewal, both individually and as families, as a church family. And so if I were to ask you this morning, what would be or who would be the most formidable opposition to you pursuing gospel renewal in your life, what would you say the answer would be? The most formidable opposition to you being renewed in the grace of God, what would your answer be? Well, probably many of you might say the evil one. And I would say that's a pretty good answer. There's other answers we're going to look at, but starting out, that would be a very good answer. You see, there is an opposing person, and there's an opposing army. That opposing army to you and I growing in grace and coming closer in relationship with the Lord himself is Satan and all his minions. All of the forces of darkness are working relentlessly, day and night, nonstop, against that happening in your life. There's nothing they desire greater than for the purposes of God's kingdom, the purposes of God's grace in your life to not show much or any fruit. For your spiritual walk with the Lord to be weak at best, if not anemic, to be ineffective in any way possible, that they would not want you to see any progress in your walk with the Lord, to have any encouragement that God desires and is seeking to infuse into your heart by His Spirit. They are opposing in every turn what God's purposes are in your life, and they are doing it with great fervor. You know, there's a need to accurately understand how our spiritual renewal is very much a challenge, is being challenged by the opposing work of spiritually very dark forces. We do need to be very aware of just how intensely the evil one and all of his army is seeking to destroy, seeking to destroy the church of Jesus Christ in every way possible. First, we see in Scripture how the evil one seeks to distract all of those who have not yet even come to know him, the Lord Jesus. Colossians, or 2 Corinthians chapter 4, it says, The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. You see, he's blinded. 
he sought in every way possible to not allow for there to be clarity regarding truth and falsehood, regarding what is good of the Lord and what is not good, to even begin to commingle truth and falsehood to where it's, it's all gray. It's not even as so important that everything is black and white or, or wrong or right, but it's really more in the gray area. And he seeks to destroy truth, the God of this age, blinding the minds of unbelievers. But also, Satan seeks to stop God's work of redemption in the world. First Peter 5, it says, verse 8, Be self-controlled and alert, Peter writes, For your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Prowling like a lion, looking for someone to devour. Not just anyone to devour, particularly believers. Looking to devour you, me. Anyone that would be vulnerable, be available for him to take down, for him to damage, to, to hurt, even to distract and put aside. He's seeking always to do so and is working hard. You know, his main objective, and this is very important, Satan's main objective is this, to oppose the reign and the purposes of God. That's why he lives. That's why he exists. He, in times past, sought to be God himself, sought to be the reigning one, and of course, he could not. And ever since then, since he was cast from the position of angelic perfection, that position he now has is certainly not one that he desires. And he is constantly seeking to thwart the purposes of the very one who is in the position he desired to be. And he will do anything to stop <clears throat> those purposes of God. He seeks to be sovereign himself rather than God. And he will work, stop at nothing to be in that position. So if anyone is seeking to fulfill God's purposes and reign in their own life, then the prince of darkness will then go against that person. If you are seeking to fulfill God's purposes in your life, if you desire that God's purposes for you are going to, you want them to be fulfilled, that God would be glorified and you would be blessed and receive the spiritual inheritance that he promises you, then you are part of the problem, you see, in the prince of darkness's eyes. You're part of the problem and he will do whatever he can to go against you. Satan and all of his minions, they never stop scheming and working to hinder the renewing power of the gospel in your heart. They never stop scheming, deceiving, lying, working on their own behalf to try and damage the church believers' lives. Our struggle is that we get so sometimes caught up in the temporal world and our own immediate desires that we can see and that we desire and that we struggle with, <clears throat> we don't even sometimes consider this opposition. How many times this past week you went through your day, you thought about 
an opposing army of evil forces going against you. Raise your hand. Let's see how many thought that. Okay. Well, three or four. Excellent. But most of us didn't. You did not th- they did not come to your mind. Maybe in your prayer time this week, did you think about praying against that opposing army? It's not just a few. It's an army of spiritual beings. Evil. Evil against God's purposes. We get so caught up in the temporal world, we don't consider the battle that is raging spiritually. There is a spiritual battle raging even right now as I'm saying this. As I'm speaking these words, proclaiming the truth of what God has told us in his word to me, to you, and you're listening to it. You cannot see it, but there is truly a spiritual battle going on. This is the last thing that he wants for me to do is to call him out or call out the opposing army to identify what who they really are and what they truly seek to do. It's the last thing that he desires. If we do even think about sometimes the spiritual realm, we often, in in terms of evil, we often expect it to look like Hollywood's portrayal of evil. What a movie maybe we've seen when we were younger or, or, or maybe recently, that's what we think of evil is Hollywood's portrayal of evil. But, you know, Satan is much more sophisticated than Hollywood. He's much more intelligent than we would give him credit for. In fact, probably most of his schemes and his working and his efforts and his actions are not so blatantly evil right in front of you. Probably most of his best work is not so evident to you or to me like maybe Hollywood would portray him to be. He manipulates situations. He manipulates people, circumstances. He tries to manipulate us to distract us, to discourage us through circumstances, through things that happen in the world or in our own family, our relationships. He is just as effective opposing you and me and his opposing army working on his behalf, he's just as effective working so indirectly than directly at you and me. You understand what I mean? He's just as effective if he works over here, knowing full well the impact it would have in other places. And that's what he seeks so often to do. It's not so much he's flying in your face, But it's that he sees different opportunities to impact us, even indirectly. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11 and 12 says, Put on then the full armor of God, so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle, and this is so important, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. That is the temporal, what you can see. But it's against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. There it is, very clear. Our battle, 
Our engagement of war is not against flesh and blood. And yet, how much energy and effort do we spend there against flesh and blood, against the things that we can try to manipulate or control temporally in a finite perspective? What we can touch, see, smell, hear, those things, that's not what Paul writes, what God tells us through his word. That's not where the real battle rages. That's not where our struggle lies. It lies in the rulers and the authorities of the prince of darkness. In those realms, spiritually, is where the battle truly lies. And since you and I cannot experience that realm in the same way because we have this body of flesh, we are truly in need of praying that God would do his great and mighty work on the battlefield on our behalf. This is why we have to realize the battle that rages in this world is simply a mere shadow of the cosmic conflict that is going on that we don't even sometimes and often do not perceive in the spiritual realm. 1 John 3, John writes this, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. 1 John 3, 8, The reason that Christ appeared, the reason he became incarnate, the reason he came to fulfill the mission of God is to destroy the devil's work. Clear, right? Maybe. What's the devil's work? What's the devil's work? Well, Let's go all the way back to the garden. Go all the way back to the beginning. What was some of, if not the best work that Satan accomplished there in the first three chapters of Genesis? What did he accomplish there? What happened in the garden as a result of his work? Well, two things for sure. Probably much more, but two things for sure. Sin and death came into creation. Those two things didn't exist before his handiwork was seen. But sin and death both came. And we, ever since then, have been experiencing these two major pillars of the devil's work. Sin and death sin and death. And it's only through Christ, the Son of God, appearing and fulfilling what the Father gave him to do that we now have the opportunity to counteract, to reverse the handiwork of the devil. That's where the beauty of the gospel shines brightest is when that handiwork that started in the garden is now stopped, reversed, changed. You see, Christ lived a perfectly sinless life. One of the pillars. He lived a perfectly sinless life and then gave up himself and became our perfect substitute. Because we struggle with sin, the devil's handiwork, We struggle with sin, and yet we now stand before the Father, righteous and holy. 
because Christ's work has accomplished that for us. And then Christ rose from the dead. He provided power over the second pillar, death. He rose from the dead, and now death no longer has reigning power, has no longer mastery like it did before because Christ has broken the powers of sin and death. So we have an opposing army, very clear, and we need to be praying against that opposition regularly and faithfully, praying that God's Spirit and His power would work protecting, providing for us, for those in our church, for those in our families, for the church in the world, for all of the opposition that the army is seeking against what God's purposes are. But there's a second opposing force. Scripture is clear. The second opposing force is the world we live in. An opposing world, not just an opposing army. There is this world we live in that is so much a struggle for us on a daily basis. If I were to ask you to define the term worldliness, what would be your answer? How would you define worldliness? Well, it might depend upon your background. If you went to church growing up or in your past, maybe you did, maybe you didn't. But depending upon your perspective on where you have come spiritually in your own personal journey, worldliness could mean several things. But for terms of understanding this one word, I would say worldliness for many Christians might mean certain, excuse me, activities that characterize the world outside the church that the church is not supposed to be allowed to participate in or to actively engage. It depends upon certain perspectives or backgrounds. Maybe some would say that would be things like drinking or dancing or attending movies or or all types of activities that they would say that's got to be worldliness and we should not participate. But the problem with that perspective of, or definition merely of what worldliness is is that it focuses pretty much on the external aspects of what we would say would be worldly or what some might say would be worldly. It just focuses on the external aspects of a person's life. And the external is really not the main struggle when it comes to the world. Even though the world is on the outside of us, it is coming upon us, it's an opposing force, it's what it does to our heart and how our heart responds to the external world that really is the main issue. John again identifies this in 1 John chapter 2. If you want to write that down, 1 John 2, 15 through 17, he writes these words. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, and this is where he kind of now unpacks what that is, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does comes not from the Father but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. John says that everything in the world in these verses, he defines what that is, and he kind of puts it in three different focus points. Cravings, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, what we desire with what 
we long for, what we see and we want so badly with our heart. And then the boasting of what we have or the boasting of who we are or what we want, believe we, we, we need to be, that comes from the heart. That's an in, all three of them stem from an internal connection to our heart. It's internal, not external. There, these, all three of these are heart-seated desires and passions. And so when we think of an opposing world, yes, we must understand what that is, but how does our heart connect or relate to that opposition? I mentioned the beginning of the year spiritually. I was going to, at points as I went through the year, particularly even in this series, mention blind spots that we might have spiritually or that we might even have as a church body. Here's one blind spot when it relates to this opposition. I believe that we as believers, especially in the United States as evangelical Christians, those who are walking and seeking to honor the Lord in our life, we have a blind spot. The blind spot is that we have allowed these things that John mentions, the cravings, the lust, and the boastings, we've allowed these desires, a presence far too great in our own hearts and in our lives. I'm guilty, and if we all would take a reflective look at what does my heart, what does my heart crave? What do my eyes want so much? What do I long to be able to boast about? If we would take an honest look, we would see some blind spots in those areas. We would understand that the blind spot we have is that we have allowed for those things to grow in our heart. We've allowed, I believe, each one of us to, to have these things grow. And when they grow, they begin to then challenge the presence of the Spirit of God in our own hearts. You can't have two masters of your heart. They can't occupy the same heart in the same way at the same time. And so <clears throat> this blind spot needs to be considered these heart seated desires where we are with them. Richard Lovelace says this. He says, the world can be defined as corporate, corporate flesh, a pattern of drives and actions resulting from the interrelationship of all the individual flesh in the bulk of humanity. You read that twice. What is he saying there? He's saying as he talks about what a worldliness is, it is the accumulation of all the interrelationships of individual people, our flesh, in this one bulk of humanity, and what we think, say, and do, all that collectively is the world. That's the world. In other words, the cumulative effects of sinful people interacting with sinful people within a fallen and broken world, which this is, that's the opposing worldliness. You know, the moral compass needle, the moral compass in our 
own nation. And depending on how old you are, you might be able to understand this statement maybe to a greater degree than me or maybe to a lesser degree, if you're younger than me or if you're older than me. But the moral compass needle is continually being pulled off of true north. It's continually being pulled away from true north of what God's desires are for us, individually and even as the people of God living in the United States. Continually being challenged. Just alone, the nature and definition of marriage, the sanctity of life, just two topics, just two subjects. I could list a lot more, but just those two alone in the past five or ten years are two fibers in the fabric of our culture that are now being completely redefined. Completely. They're not what they were when I was in college. Definition, understanding what truth says about those subject matters. You could take a lot more, but even those things are not as they used to be. The world changes all the time its definitions of what it says truth is. It's a moving target, and it's virtually impossible to hit it because it's always moving, always moving. You know, our world has a natural inclination towards spiritual disintegration. Naturally, it's disintegrating morally and spiritually, and it just feeds upon itself, and it seeks to pull all who follow the one true living God in Christ down and away from that true north. You know, even at home, I'm not sure if you have children if, if, uh, or maybe your children are grown, but as parents, we want to protect our children. And even in our house, we have filters on things like television or the internet and those type of things. Filters are helpful. And I encourage you, if you haven't even considered that, maybe you're not very technologically in tune, that you seriously consider doing that for the protection even of your own children. But you know, even though we have filters and we seek to help our children in that way by protecting them, that's not even close to being enough. We have to train and equip our children as they grow up under us to have those spiritual filters that God gifts them and gives us as he indwells, that he lives in them by his spirit to give them filters spiritually so they understand. So as they leave our home, they have those filters and we've helped them understand how to employ those filters. That has nothing to do with what's on the computer or the television and what's happening in their own heart and mind. See, we have to pray and seek that those are the filtration systems that God puts in our children as well as ourselves so that they may be blessed spiritually and may flourish and see fruit of the gospel of grace in their own life. You know, <clears throat> we've looked at an opposing army, we've looked at an opposing world, but the last and final outside, the last and final force is not necessarily on the outside at all. It's not something external. 
It's actually even more greatly than us being connected in our heart to what worldliness is. It is an internal force that's working against us being renewed in grace. It's the last hindrance within us, and possibly even greater than the other two opposing forces we've already identified. It is our opposing nature. You see, in you and in me, there is an opposing nature. It's there. Even as a believer, it still has a presence. Even if you know the Lord in your life, if you have a relationship with the living God, there's a, an opposing nature still present, still very much able to do great damage and hindrance to your walk with the Lord. And is opposing you all the time, never resting, never stopping, never once giving you a break. This opposing nature is that which we received all the way back again to the garden. Ever since the fall of man, all of Adam's progeny has received this opposing nature. It's our fallen nature. It's our sinfulness. It's our heart that does stand by itself condemned because of our rebellion against a holy God. This opposing nature is possibly a great, uh, the greatest opposing force that we sometimes don't want to really admit is there. We don't want to recognize it, and sometimes we don't want to confess that it truly is as difficult as it really is in our own hearts. Romans chapter 6 speaks about this. Paul writes, For we know that our old self was crucified with him, that is Christ, so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Key word right there in that verse, those two verses. We know that the old self was crucified. That means as Christ came and he allowed for that which was our old nature to be dealt with, it says that the body of sin might be done away with. At first glance, you might think, well, that means that this body of sin, this, this sin nature, this which I struggle with, it's done away with. It's, we get rid of it when we come to know Christ. That's what it says. But yet, if you look at the original intent and writing of that phrase, done away with, it literally means it's rendered powerless. That this body of sin will be rendered powerless. Not excised and completely tossed aside and no longer exists, but in its existence, it is rendered powerless. It's there, but it does not have the power it once did. Unless, unless you allow it to. And that is your choice. That is what responsibility God has given us as his children Though his presence is there, if you allow for that body of sin, that nature that opposes God himself, if you allow for it to gain strength, if you feed it, if you 
give it what it desires, what your heart desires in its own flesh, then it will not be powerless. It will be very powerful. Now, it will never rise to the place where it will be able to remove the presence of Christ in your own life, ever. God the Father will not allow that. Christ will not allow that. However, we can go through great difficulty spiritually in our life if we choose to allow that nature to gain strength. You see, what we really don't see as followers of Christ is sometimes the depth of our own sinfulness. I struggle with that. We don't see the depth of our own corruption. We really don't see that sin is more than just what we do. Our particular sins might be what you think or what you say or what you do. And particular sins we often then will confess in prayer. But there's something at a whole other level below our particular sins. And that is this opposing nature. Our sinfulness. You see, that's there. Particular sins are a mere outworking of our sinfulness. It merely is what we are evidenced by. And yet, it runs so deep. And so we struggle in really seeking to render it powerless, to take advantage of that power that the Spirit of God does give us over that opposing nature. Paul himself, the apostle, struggled to do this greatly. Romans chapter 7, what does it say? He writes these words. Paul says, I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature, for I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. This is the Apostle Paul. This is someone who wrote half the New Testament is saying, I'm doing what I don't want to do, and I'm not doing what I know I want to do. In my heart, the spirit that lives there, he's struggling with his opposing nature. If he struggles, certainly we struggle. Certainly you and I struggle like he does. He identifies it, he articulates it so well, because that opposing force is there. Every day, you wake up with yourself. And every night you go to sleep with yourself and that opposing nature. And so we have got to look to the Spirit of God to render continually that nature powerless. You can't fight it in your own strength. You can try. You'll lose every time. You'll lose every time. You may think you're gaining ground, but you'll be deceiving yourself in your own strength. So we see these three opposing forces, an opposing army, an opposing world, and an opposing nature. But here's the thing. Do we really take seriously the call that Scripture has given us today to man the battle stations against these opposing forces? Do you seriously take that call to work against these opposing forces? It's a question you have to answer right now. 
I'm not going to leave here until you answer it. I'm not going to let you leave until you think for just a second about are you ready to answer the call to oppose these forces against your growth and renewal and grace. You see, we don't view ourselves, and this is another blind spot, me and you, we, we do not often view ourselves as soldiers in this war, spiritually. We don't look at ourselves like that because we don't even realize the battle that's raging, really. Instead, we want the blessings of protection and peace inside the fortress of the walls of our church while the battle rages all around us. I never forget when the Gulf War happened. It was surreal, I remember, my thoughts about that. And even today, Afghanistan, any, any conflict abroad. You see it on the 6 o'clock news, the latest body count, or the latest conflict, or I, the bomb that went off, or those things. But how long do you really think about it after you see that? on the news for, 20, for 10 minutes. It's almost like it's not really, not really, it's not real to us. But if you're there, if you're in the conflict, if you're there, if you go over there, it's a whole different perspective, of course. The same thing happens spiritually. It's almost like we're really not seeing the spiritual realm of the opposing forces like they really are. And we are actually there, but we don't see it like that. And so, therefore, we have a blind spot. We don't view ourselves as soldiers in this spiritual war. I've used the analogy before of a ship. Of a ship. If you've ever been on a cruise, I've only been on one cruise in my life many years ago. Only one cruise ever. It was quite an experience. In fact, a cruise ship is something maybe some of you have been on. I happened to go on this one ship. It was... I think the cruise line was called um, uh, Royal Caribbean, and it was called the Majesty of the Seas was the name of the, of the ship. They have, these, these names of these boats are incredible. They just create this whole picture. of. So we took a trip for a few days on the Majesty of the Seas. What an amazing vessel this was. I looked online this week and kind of found some statistics about the Majesty of the Seas. You know, when you're on a cruise ship, you've got... All over the deck, lounge chairs that are luxurious, towels folded everywhere, just grab a towel anytime you want. Your, your, your cabin, whether it's a, a cabin that has an, an outdoor balcony or even an interior cabin, they're, they're just completely, they have everything you need. You have people that come and they cater to every single, things you didn't even think you needed, they cater to, to, the, to, to things that you didn't even realize. They're constantly cleaning up your room and making funny animal with your towels and things like this. They, they do all kinds of things just to make you have an experience like you've never had before. People are serving you whatever you want, when you want it. I remember one particular day we had gone on an excursion and done something like I don't know, parasailing or something or something like that. And we were just tired from the day. Oh, I was exhausted to go parasailing. So I came back, and instead of going to my 6 o'clock dinner at the big banquet hall, I decided we're just going to stay in our cabin and, and order in. So I picked up the phone and called, and filet mignon just came right to our room. 
I mean, it's like, are you serious? I get filet me on in the bed? Yes, just pick up the phone and ask for it. There it was. An amazing experience. What's the purpose of the passengers on a cruise ship? The purpose of every passenger is consumption and indulgence, if we're honest. That's what it's about. It really is. You don't go on a cruise ship for work duty. You go to indulge, to get away from it all. You know, it's interesting. I looked up uh, the ratio of the passengers and the crew on the majesty of the seas. And there's about 3,500 people that are on the ship, of which 700 are crew. What's the ratio? Five to one. About 20% of the people on that ship are doing all the work for everyone that's on that ship. Sound familiar? The whole 80-20 principle? About 20% 20 of the people on that ship are doing everything that needs to be done so that the other 80% of the people that are on that ship get to enjoy and sit back and observe and watch. That's the reality of it. But now you take a different kind of ship, which is, and some of you I know may have experienced this because you were in the military, a battleship. A battleship. Now that's a different ship altogether than a cruise ship, is it not? I've never been on a battleship. Some of you have gone and just walked a battleship and you know, you've done so by just a tour. I'd love to do that someday, never done that myself, but some of you actually have lived and worked on a battleship in your experience. In a battleship, it's very different. You have a single small footlocker or maybe a small cubicle place to keep your personal belongings, and we're talking small. You have very few personal belongings, things that you own for yourself. You have a bunk, not a very thick mattress, but a bunk with many other people in the same location. You don't have an estate room. You have a bunk that you get to sleep in only so many hours every day. You eat when it's necessary, and you eat what is served to you, and you are thankful for it every time you have an opportunity to eat or drink. The purpose of the passengers of every battleship is contribution and fulfilling the mission that they're there for. That's why they're on the ship. They're there to contribute, and they're there to fulfill the mission of what that vessel is seeking to accomplish. That's it. There's nothing more and nothing less that those passengers on that battleship seek to do. Consumption or contribution? Big difference. What kind of church is Christ's community? What kind of church is this? Is it? More like a cruise ship. Is that how you view the church? Or do you view it against these opposing forces as a battleship? Where we all are called to man the stations. We're called to seek to fulfill that overarching mission that God has called us all to together. There's going to be casualties along the way. And we do have a sick bay on every ship. And there's places where medics are there and people need to be helped who are hurt. But the ship still continues on every time. Which 
are you part of? Which are you praying for? Which type of vessel do you desire for this church to be? I pray that we would together ask that God would give us the heart of a battleship. He would give us the desire, how big or small we ever are, to be that kind of branch of his church. So that as we're being renewed in God's grace, so are all those that he has called us to fulfill that mission for as we seek to minister to them as well.